Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Where we read just a moment ago, and uh, this morning we begin a study in the final chapter of Hebrews as we've been going through this precious book that God gives us in His Word. Uh, We are in the practical application section of this letter, and... uh, almost really rings a lot like Proverbs. This last chapter, you're going to see, do this, don't do this. Very practical truths here. Um, God is emphasizing the importance that Christians follow Jesus Christ by living out the love of Christ to those around them. And that's what we're called to do, is it not? That's our mission. As we progress to the, the finish line of heaven, we are to make disciples of Jesus Christ, and we do that by sharing the gospel, its truth, and also the love of Jesus Christ. Just a few moments ago, we sang that newer hymn, Speak, O Lord, the end of the first stanza. Our request to God, as we sang, was for God to take his truth and to plant it deep in us, to shape us, to fashion us in the likeness of Christ, so that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love, and in our deeds of faith. And I desire for that to be the confession and commitment of Dublin First Baptist Church, but it can only be so if it's the confession and commitment of every individual that composes this beautiful family of God here. We already read these six verses before we study them verse by verse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we ask what we just sang. Speak, Lord. Uh, Lord, reveal your truth to us. May your Holy Spirit have uh, unfettered, uh, without obstacle uh, ministry as he reveals what it is you want us to know, and if need be, what it is you want us to change. Lord, I pray that we would be empowered and encouraged uh, because of your grace to confess and repent of any sins, any failings, to live out the love of Christ, that we'd be empowered and encouraged through your word, motivated to do that as you have requested, commanded of us here in these six verses. For your glory, Lord, that the name of Jesus would be treasured in all those we interact with in the week ahead. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first three verses really talking about the the Christian and ministry. We're talking about service here. Did you know that every one of you who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are in the ministry? You might have thought that it's only myself or Pastor Tommy uh, or Pastor Daniel, people that that through your tithes and offerings you pay to be in the ministry. Uh, No, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell you when you first trusted in Jesus as Savior, he gave you something. Uh, He gave you a spiritual gift. You might have more than one. Um, You also may have one that changes at times, depending on the needs of the church you're associated with or the ministry that he has called you to, but but when you got saved, you also signed up for service. You might not have known that at the time, but you did. 
Uh, and you might be thinking, well, well, I don't know that I am in the ministry. Uh, I'm not awful involved right now. No worries, I can help you with that. Right back there, there's a whole stack of nominating committee forms. It's that time of year. Uh, and the nominating committee, I see heads bobbing. They're like, yes, praise Jesus. Um, we, we need some help here. Uh, God has a ministry for you. And uh, it will bring me great joy to help you find that place of service. And I promise it will also bring you great joy. Uh, I got all kinds of opportunities for you. The pastors, the nominating committee, we are looking for some people to minister right now. So if that's your situation, you just let me know and we can all help you find that place, that spot that God has for you. But seriously, Christian, you are in the ministry. You ought to be anyway. Uh, the great love that we have sung about this morning that God has for us in Jesus Christ, it is not to end with you and I. It's not to pool up in us as if we were the end recipient of the grace of God to us in Christ, the end of our salvation. No, we get doused with, we get filled with God's grace and God's love so that we can be pipes to dispense it through the ministry gifts that the Holy Spirit has given every single one of us when he comes to live in us. So, so that we can make the name of Jesus treasured in the lives of others, pointing them to Christ. You have a gift. You, you might have a few of them. And Christian, you are in the ministry. The, the foundation and the motivation for that ministry has got to be what verse 1 here describes. Let brotherly love continue. So God's love to us and you and I extending his love to others. And then in verses 2 to 6, we are, we're given some very practical ways for us to show that love, to minister to others in love, to actually be doing something with those gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us. The first two things listed in verses 2 and 3, these are ways that brotherly love will continue in our lives, and our ministry, that all of us as Jesus followers are called to. First of all, we are to entertain. Verse 2 begins by telling us we're to serve each other in brotherly love, by every Christian not being forgetful to entertain strangers. Now, you might be worried because you're like, well, if I'm called to do that, I don't really find myself very entertaining. Well, let me tell you what entertain means. In the Greek, the Greek word is philonexia, and it means to show hospitality. It means to be friendly, especially to those you don't know or you don't know very well. And this is actually listed as a, a particular specific spiritual gift that some Christians are given by the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 4, 9 through 10. There is more than a few uh, Christians right here in the sanctuary and who will be here later in the second service that they have this special gift of hospitality. And with great love and with excellence, they serve this church family, our community, and many times even strangers in obedience to God's commandment here. There's so many ladies and men and men who are coming to mind right now, but every believer is told by God in these verses to exhibit the love of Christ by displaying hospitality in verse 2. It says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, it could be something as simple as just greeting someone during the day, um, asking them how they're doing, Telling them you're praying for them. Even better yet would be you praying with them. Uh, it could be something like making a meal to take someone in need or, or keeping a gift card or two at the ready all the time in your car in case God brings some stranger across your path who has a need that you could show hospitality to. And this is a ministry that every single Jesus follower is called to serve others in. And then verse 2 gives us a, a pretty interesting or at least unique 
uh, reason for obeying this directive for the Lord. It says, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, the Greek word for angels here, it can simply mean messengers as it does in the first three chapters of Revelation when it describes the pastors that John wrote seven letters to. Um, But I believe that God could just as easily be referring to angels like in our normal sense of the word, those heavenly beings created by God to serve him. I mean, it's happened before, hasn't it, in God's word? Back in Genesis 18, 1 through 3, Abraham entertained angels. He fixed a meal for them, and they ate. A chapter later, his nephew Lot was also hospitable to angels. The, the emphasis here is on showing Christ-like love through being friendly, hospitable, meeting the tangible needs of strangers. It was a significant necessary in the church that this was originally written to. Back uh, in the first century, the inns, the, the hotel, what we would call hotels or motels, they were known for being uh, magnets of pretty unsavory people. There were thieves. There were murderers there. Rampant immorality was associated with those places. So by obeying this command to minister and to serve others through entertaining them, missionaries, other Christians who were traveling, even those who don't know the Lord yet, they would be shown the love of Christ, and they would be pointed to the love of Christ. And, and while the last part of verse 2 gives us an interesting point about who might be our guest when we obey God's command here, uh, as Jesus followers, I think it's even better to remember the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew twenty-five thirty-six. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So, so even better than the possibility of entertaining angels is the reality that when you and I are obedient to this command, this ministry here towards strangers, we are really doing it to Jesus Christ himself. Our ministry to others as Jesus followers should also be marked with empathy. Verse 3 talks about that. It says, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Back in chapter 10 here in Hebrews, uh, God had mentioned some of these believers, they had been imprisoned. For their faith, um, arrested and imprisoned. And here in verse 3, the next facet of ministry that every single believer uh, is commanded by God to play a consistent part in is that of empathy. That word remember at the beginning of verse 3, uh, as usual, when it's used in the Bible, it's not talking about just being aware of something or knowing something, but the actions that result from thinking about it. And the level of empathy is described there. It is to be one of really entering into and experiencing or enduring the very same struggle that our brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing. So whether that's imprisonment, whether that's persecution uh, for their faith, or or just suffering adversity, the primary concept that's being talked about here is one of being persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Sometimes we distinguish that from other uh, forms, I guess you could say, of suffering, Like when we experience loss, maybe a loved one passes away or um, maybe we're afflicted by a chronic illness or or really any other difficult circumstance that a Christian might face. Sometimes we distinguish that from persecution from our faith. I've said it before, but I don't really see a biblical reason for doing that, for separating the two. And, And here's why. They have the same design from God. They're for the building of your faith, for the construction of your faith. They have the same intent from the devil for the destruction of your faith. 
and also they have the same remedy. So whether you're being persecuted for your stand for Christ, for your faith uh, by some person or maybe some government, or uh, whether you're just facing some tribulation in life that all of us faith at, face as uh, believers, it is uh, our response as followers of Jesus Christ to trust in the power and goodness of God in either of those situations. Um, we're to trust in God walking with us through through that situation and being a testimony to others as God walks with us through it. Our testimony should be that we value Jesus Christ more than anything. It doesn't matter if it's persecution from your faith or just any other form of suffering. So, so to help those experiencing these things, to help them get through, God commands every Christian here in verse 3 to display empathy. And I hope you can understand that the idea here is so much more than a verbal, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, I'll be praying for you. I mean, yeah, say that, that's a good start, but, but listen to these two phrases here in verse 3. As bound with them, like you're right there in jail next to them. Or as far as adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Those are very strong descriptions of what God means by empathy here and us ministering the love of Christ to others who are suffering. We're actually to share, to share in their suffering ourselves. We're to walk with them through it so that they do go through it. We're to be in Jesus to them. We're to be the love of Jesus to them. And again, there is a particular uh, specific spiritual gift that lines up with this command here in verse 3 that is given to some Christians by the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 6 through 8 mentions a gift of mercy, and that would align with this call for Christians to serve each other in empathy. But, but also, again, every Jesus follower is being commanded here to minister to others this way. You might wonder if you have this gift. And I think it's interesting um, it's been my experience that I've seen this gift most often in those who need it, who need it. It's so much easier to enter into another person's suffering, into their struggle, uh, when you are in it yourself or when you have walked through and experienced God's mercy from another believer before. Uh, in fact, that is why God comforts us. It tells us that in 2 Corinthians 1 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's a Father of mercies. He's a God of all comfort who comforts us in our tribulation so that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort where we ourselves are comforted by God. Did you get that? God never comforts us so that we're comfortable. He comforts us so that we are comforters. That's his call to us. So many times when we are going through suffering, we want to know why. Why us, God? Well, it may not even be about us and the building of our faith necessarily. God might be having us walk through some pain, and he may be comforting us in it so that we can minister to someone else who is in it and they don't know which way to go. That's the Christian and ministry or service. Now in verse 4, we see the Christian and marriage. And it's about sex but about so much more. Uh, we see the purpose of God in marriage. There's not really time to develop this fully this morning. Uh, if Christian and Evan 
uh, were here, or Scott and Elise, I could call them up here to explain God's purpose in marriage because uh, they got it drilled into their heads when they went through premarital counseling. But let me just kind of give you the lowdown from God's word as quickly as I can. The Bible teaches us about God's, God's purpose in marriage. It is not just to find happiness in life. It does that. That's been my experience. Um, it's not just to have a more sound financial standing. It can do that. And it's not for the purpose of a myriad of other reasons that this world thinks marriage is all about. God's word tells us, first of all, that foundationally marriage is the doing, the doing of God. And that's important because if it's God's doing, then only God should be the one to undo it. And secondly, ultimately, ultimately, the Bible says that marriage is for the display of God. The display of God. That is God's message to us throughout the Bible, but especially in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 32, our marriages are to display God. They are to display the gospel. They are to display the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Now, let me try to explain how that works as practically and as concisely as I can this morning. Long before you will ever talk to your children or your family members or maybe some neighbor about salvation and about what God provides for us, uh, in Jesus Christ, long before you will ever have the opportunity to tell them about that, they will see it, or they won't see it, in your marriage. Grace needed. That's what they'll see. You know why? Because two, marriage is two sinners <laughs> coming together. There will be grace needed. Um, grace given. They should see that. Because the Christian marriage is two forgiven sinners <laughs> coming together. And if we've been forgiven then we also ought to forgive. The, the Christian home, the Christian marriage is to be this gospel displaying, gospel declaring place of grace. And it's only there. It is only in a place of grace that any kind of transformation can occur. It's only in a place of grace, whether that's in the church, uh, whether that's in a family, in a home, or, or whether it's in any relationship, only in a place of grace can God's purpose of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ occur. Um, so because, because of the power in God's purpose in marriage and because of the destructive power of God's purpose in marriage being undervalued or violated, there is a, a need in marriage for purity. That's what the rest of verse 4 talks about. Listen, God is not against sex. He created it. He created it with a purpose as well. Obviously, it's for pleasure. Obviously, it's for procreation. Uh, but God's main purpose in his gift of sex that he created and gave to us is to bond two individuals together in a one flesh relationship. And that is why it's the clear teaching of Scripture that it is to take place only between a husband and a wife, uh, only within the confines, only within the boundaries of a Christian marriage. And when it occurs outside of God's design, outside of the confines of a Christian marriage, not only is it disobedience to God and a violation of his design, it will result in negative consequences, as, as any sin does. Uh, the Bible celebrates sexual expression uh, in marriage, but it condemns it outside of the marriage commitment, outside of the marriage covenant. So in, in verse 4, God tells us that marriage is honorable, honorable. The Greek word there is timios. It means um, something of immeasurable value, something that's precious. It's, honor it's, it's really serious. 
the word timios is also used to describe the blood of Christ. That's how precious God sees marriage. Uh, and God also tells us that, that the marital sexual expression is valuable here in verse 4. Both marriage and it are designed by God with a purpose. But, but verse 4 ends with this command and this warning for those who would violate God's purpose and his design. It says, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So the first individual described there is one who would take part in sex outside of God's design in marriage. And the second warning is for those who would take part in sex outside of the one they are united to in marriage. And like a lot of what we're told to do here as Christians in these opening six verses of Hebrews 13, this might seem old-fashioned. It might sound countercultural. Well, that's fine. It might be. Um, but we can get with God's design and purpose, or we can do things the world's way. And let me just ask, since that's the way most of our culture has been doing it, how's that working for us? Not so good. Let's go the way of God's way. Amen. That's how we should be doing things. Finally, there's the Christian and materialism. This is about satisfaction. We're given some truth here in verse 5. God tells us in verse 5 to walk in Christian love toward each other by making sure that our conversation is without covetousness, instead being content with such things as you have. And conversation here in the King James, it means our conduct, our way of life. And our way of life as followers of Jesus Christ is to be free from covetousness and is to be full of contentment. Now, those are two diametrically opposed things, covetousness and contentment. All day long, you and I, we, we see things and we hear things that say, you need me, you can't live without me, your friends and neighbors have me, you deserve me. And the message of materialism, it calls to us constantly, in our culture. Christian, God is not opposed to you having things, but he's most certainly opposed to things having you. And um, the Jesus follower is to be content, not covetous. God prohibits covetousness in the Ten Commandments, right? The 10th of the Ten Commandments. But honestly, when we violate that one, we've already violated the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. And while we would never call those things we covet a God, you cannot covet anything without worshiping it. And God says here, Christian, be content. I came across, the, I don't know if it's part of a sermon, but I was reading a, a book by one of my favorite pastors and authors, A.W. Tozer, and listen to what he said here. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of sin whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a, a deep and fierce passion. Those pronouns, my, mine, they look innocent enough in print, but they are constant and universal, and that's significant because they express the real nature of fallen man better than a thousand books on theology ever could. They are a verbal symptom of a deep disease. Here it is. The roots of our heart have grown down into things, and we think we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us. That is a development God never intended. Too often, even God's gifts for the Christian, they now take the place of God in our lives, and our lives, and our families, and our churches, even our communities, have been upset by this monstrous substitution. God's word says to us here in verse 5, be content with such things as you have. That's tough in this culture. 
difficult to obey this command. But we can't. We can't obey this command because of the truth that God provides us here in verse 5 and on into verse 6. Listen to what his word says. Listen to these promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. And God says, the Lord is my helper. I won't fear what man shall do to me. Right there, you have two promises, two truths from God to empower your commitment to be content and to not covet. One, the first one, it's, it's positional. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The, the second one is provisional. The Lord is my helper. I don't need to fear. And with these two truths, I do not have to worry about what I don't have. I don't have to worry about amassing things that I think I might need someday. I don't have to worry about what my neighbor has, but I don't. I don't have to worry about what my neighbor's kids have, but mine don't. I said it. All because of these rock-solid promises here that God gives us. And when we rely on these two truths and choose to be content and not be covetous, things will never have you. They won't. Only God will. Christian, that needs to be your testimony. Isn't that what verse 6 says? That I may boldly say, (laughs) and you should boldly say it, with your lips, but also with your lives. They should scream contentment. Your lives speak more loudly after all. The Lord is my helper. That's what should be declared from how you live, the things you value, and the things you want. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. I have him, and in him I have everything. And our testimony should be the echo of King David in Psalm 23.1. Newer versions say, the Lord is my shepherd. I've got everything I need. That's what I shall not want means. These are practical concepts, practical commands God gives us here at the beginning of chapter 13 for Christian living. We are to follow our superior Savior, Jesus Christ, by living out the love of Christ. You can only do that if you've received him as Savior. That's never happened. If you can't look back to a point in time in your life when you realized you were a sinner and you needed a Savior and you confessed your sins to God in prayer and and asked Christ to to be your Savior, to give you eternal life, Uh, do that this morning. Even as I'm talking right now, we'll have a time of invitation here in a couple minutes, but don't wait for that. If you've got questions about what that means, the back of our bulletin, our website, come and ask me before you leave here today or text me. Uh, But the primary thrust of God's word to us in this passage is for those who have already trusted Christ as Savior. It's to teach the Christian about how he is to live out the love of Christ in ministry. Are you serving others? Are you using the spiritual gift or gifts uh, that God has given you? Are you extending grace to those who are in need and, and who are hurting? If not, will you commit to do that today? Will you say, God, bring these people across my path. Help me to love them like Jesus. God, I'm willing to worship you by sacrificing my time and by offering my talents to you so that I can serve you where you need me in your church. God gave this section of scripture to teach Christians how they are to live out the love of Christ in marriage. For those of you who are married, are you living intentionally in your union with each other according to God's design and God's purpose in your marriage? I mean, your marriage is a doing of God, but has it been? Is it currently for the display of God? Is your marriage, your home life, is it marked by such grace that it is a gospel proclamation to all of those involved, to your kids, to your spouse, to your extended family outside of the home, to your neighbors? Is it marked by moral purity? For those of you not yet married, is your life marked by moral purity? I urge you to go the way of God's way here. There's not another way. Your happiness, 
his blessing on your life are contingent on you doing so. Finally, God gave us a section of scripture to teach Christians how they're to live out the love of Christ by forsaking materialism. Will it be covetousness or contentment today? What about tomorrow morning? Genuine happiness is found only in the latter, in contentment. A God-glorifying testimony of how you view God, how you view his worth to you, that will only, it will only be declared in your contentment. Will you make that your testimony today? Will you make that what is boldly said by your lips and your lives for the rest of your life with God's help as Tommy comes and leads us in a hymn of invitation? However, the Holy Spirit has used the word of God to call you to respond today. I just ask that you would obey him.